Happy Monday! Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Cordelia. And on today's episode, we are talking about two disgusting men. One is named Bill Cosby and one is named Bruce Castor. Buckle up and you might want to keep a vomit bag nearby because just be forewarned, these people may make you incredibly sick. Truly honored to do this podcast today on my 31st birthday. I cannot think of a better way to celebrate, honestly, than skewering two men. So let's get to it. After a few messages from our sponsors, we're going to get right into the episode. As always, be sure to check out the show notes. In today's show notes, I have linked every Bill Cosby court opinion because, by the way, all this information that I'm giving you today, I'm not getting it from the media, not getting it from TV shows, from whatever. I spent hours reading all of the various court opinions, and I've linked them in the show notes, and you are free to read them yourself. If you like my content, follow me on Instagram at Codependent Recovery. If you haven't already, please leave a review for my podcast. I would so appreciate it. Unless you're Bill Cosby listening to the episode today. You know what? Go ahead and one star me, Bill. Go for it. Now listen up for a few words from our sponsor. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by two different sponsors. They are both doggy companies, so you know that I love them. (laughs) I will, for full disclosure and transparency, as I always want to disclose that kind of stuff to you, I will earn a commission if you end up clicking through the links for either of these sponsors and making a purchase. With that being said, I prior to getting in Instagram and getting any kind of partnership with these sponsors as well as getting my podcast with my own money I I bought these products on my own out of my pocket and I can honestly say that I like these products a lot I I stand behind these products and that's the only reason that I'm comfortable partnering with them so first sponsor is iron doggy if you follow me on instagram that's who i I always show like the leash in my instagram that i use on my two dogs so i love their hands-free leashes you can use them for walking or running and they're awesome for taking your dogs around even if you just have one dog they have that option but they have awesome options for two dogs as well i have linked in the show notes, the leashes that I use for my dogs, as well as provided a general link. And if you use the code HEAL10, you get an additional 10% off. The other sponsor for today's episode is Embark. Again, this is another company that I paid for out of pocket, did the dog DNA testing kits on my dogs. And I thought it was such a cool process and I was really excited for this opportunity now to partner with them. So the results came back 
it took about mine only took about two weeks but they general generally come back in two to four weeks the, they test over 350 breeds of dogs they're the most accurate dog dna test on the market and they're the only canine dna relative finder they analyze over 200,000 genetic markers and i've put the links for those kits in the show notes if you use the spring 50 code on the link that I provided to the breed and health kit, that will get you $50 off. I loved finding out my dog's breeds. I thought that was so cool. So I hope you enjoy those and check out the show notes. As mentioned, I will get a commission if you click on the affiliate link and purchase through there. going to go ahead and preface this if you don't want to be triggered by stories and talking about sexual assault sexual violence skip this episode it's not going to hurt my feelings be forewarned on the front end in case you've been living in a cave and you've not heard any of the news when I say this podcast is about Bill Cosby and Bruce Caster, that is going to sadly involve talking about those tough topics. As I mentioned, this is an honor and a privilege on my 31st birthday to just get to break these two assholes down. And let me just start by saying a few things. Number one, None of this information is from any news article. It is directly from the court opinions, the various court opinions. I have compiled all those. I have saved them onto a Google Drive. And that is in the show notes. You can read them all yourselves. You don't have to read from the media. You don't even have to trust what I'm saying. You can read them. I have done the legwork for you, and it is in the show notes. Number two thing that I want to say is I am so angry about this topic and about the injustice of what has happened here and so this podcast is going to be particularly passionate and number three in case you're wondering like how is Cordelia qualified to talk about these things let me tell you Right now, let me just lay out my resume for you. I am licensed to practice in law in two states in one federal district and admission is pending in a third state. I've tutored people from approximately 15 different states to pass the bar exam. I was a prosecutor for several years in a major U.S. city in law school. I graduated in the top 28% of my class. I graduated with a certificate in advocacy, an award in leadership, service, and public interest. I received 
awards for the highest grade in advocacy in fall 2013 and an award for the highest grade in Illinois criminal law in fall of 2013. I was on the Dean's List every semester, spring 2013 through spring 2015. I am telling you all of this because I'm letting you know that I'm not just some random internet person regurgitating some news articles. I'm really breaking this down for you and I really hope that it helps survivors out there understand what has happened and I hope it I break it down in a way that people understand all this legal jargon and understand what exactly has gone on here. So I'm not just trying to be like, look how smart I am and look how amazing I am. I want you to know that I'm just not a random internet person. I'm not a random podcaster trying to stick my nose into something I don't know about. I was a prosecutor. I did negotiate. I did make deals. I did all these things that come up in this case. And I know exactly what I'm talking about. So let's skewer these two just horrible garbage pieces of shit humans. Let's zoom out really far. Where is this all happening? This is in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which is adjacent and northwest of Philadelphia. I've actually linked a Google map in the show notes for people who are more visual or who might not be very familiar with the U.S. Maybe you live outside and it just helps to see a map. So that is there. Procedurally, how did we get to the opinion that came out last week? In April 9th, 2018 to April 26th, 2018, there was a jury trial. And that was done by the trial court in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Bill Cosby was found guilty on three counts of aggravated incident assault from that jury trial. The sentence was entered by the trial court from the jury trial on September 25th, 2018. After that, Bill Cosby's attorneys filed a post-sentence motion to reconsider and modify the sentence and for a new trial. And on October 28th, 3rd, 2018, the trial court denied that. On May 14th, 2019, the Court of Common Pleas agreed with the trial court. They affirmed the trial court's decision. So in Pennsylvania, the Court of Common Pleas is the first place that Cosby had to appeal to. So their trial courts, which hear appeals in cases from some of the lower courts or more minor courts. So that was the first appeal. Let's recap. Jury found him guilty. He sentenced. Cosby asks the trial judge, hey, will you reconsider? He says no. That's appealed to the Court of Common Pleas. They say we agree with the trial court. No. December 2019 is the next step. That is when the Superior Court of Pennsylvania 
again agreed with the trial court and they affirmed the trial court's decision. So the Superior Court in Pennsylvania, that is the appellate court that handles appeals in criminal and civil cases from the Court of Common Pleas. So again, let's recap. Jury trial, convicted by the jury. He's sentenced by the trial court. Judge says, no, I'm not going to reconsider the decision. The Court of Common Pleas, here's the appeal. They say, no, the trial court was right. So shut the fuck up and go to jail. December 2019, Superior Court once again says, no, the trial court was right. Shut the fuck up. You're staying in jail. June 2021, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania disagrees with all these other judges and jury in the jury. And they say the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania reverses the conviction. So the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is the highest arbiter of all the cases in the Pennsylvania judicial system. And they have authority over the entire court system. So again, everyone else has said, you know, there was nothing wrong with what happened in Bill Cosby's trial until we get to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. He was sentenced on September 25th, 2018, and then released June 2021. Now, his sentence was to undergo imprisonment for not less than three years, nor more than 10 years. So, you know, he got out a few months early from the three-year imprisonment. And now I want to break down exactly what happened in this case, who are all the players, what How did the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania reach this ridiculous decision? Let's start from the beginning of how Cosby and the victim know each other. How do they know each other? The victim was a Canadian-born former professional basketball player. She was the director of basketball operations for Temple's women's basketball team. Cosby has really close ties with Temple University. They originally met in the fall of 2002 in the capacity of her job. She was introduced to him at a basketball game, and then she also accompanied several others in giving him a tour of Temple's newly renovated facilities at the time. After that, they continued talking. So several days after the initial introduction, defendant called Temple with some questions about the renovations, and he spoke to the victim on the phone. Several weeks later, she again spoke to him on the phone, and they discussed how they met at Temple game, and they began having regular conversations, mostly talking about Temple sports, And talking about her personal information, her history as a professional basketball player, her career goals, her educational background. After having several phone conversations, she goes to his house. And on that instance, he places his hand on her thigh 
and she leaves shortly after. Nothing happened between them. Subsequently, she is invited to a blues concert by him in New York City. So she attends the blues concert with other young women who had similar interests as she did. And Cosby was not on that trip. He wasn't at the concert. She did not see him. Afterwards, she goes to his house again and they discuss how she could potentially break into sports broadcasting. On that occasion, he reaches over and he attempts to unbutton and unzip her pants. She leaned forward to stop him and he does stop. At that point, she feels like she's made it clear to him that she's not interested in him sexually. She continues to have contact with him primarily by phone and related to Temple Sports. He's also in touch with her family at this point. And he gets like backstage passes for her family in Ontario and her mom and her sister attend one of his performances and he gets them these backstage passes and they meet him after after his performance. In late 2003, he invites her to Foxwood Casino in Connecticut. She goes, he invites her to his room, and they discuss usual topics, temple, sports, broadcasting. He did not make any advances, and she leaves. She goes back to her room. She viewed him as a mentor and a friend. I'm quoting her actual testimony. She said, he was a well, he was well respected at Temple as a trustee and alumni. She was grateful for the help that he tried to give her in her career. She continued her friendship with him despite what she felt were two sexual advances. She was a young, fit woman, and she didn't feel physically threatened by him. The incident that is involved in this case happened in January 2004. At that time, she was 30 years old, and he was 66 years old. Again, she was previously a professional basketball player. She's a 30-year-old woman. He gives all kinds of money. He's a huge donor to Temple at the time, and she trusts him, and she appreciates how he's helping her career, and it makes sense that she was not afraid of a 66-year-old man because... Why, why would she have reason to be? When the incident happens, it's January 2004, and he invites her to his house. She had decided to leave her job and return to where she was from, Canada. And she'd been to his house before. Like I said, this isn't the first time at his house. On the night of the incident, she gets there. There's a glass of water and a glass of wine on the table when she gets there. She drinks the water only at first. And this is because she had not eaten a lot. She did not want to drink on an empty stomach. Eventually, Cosby convinces her to taste the wine. She talks about how she's stressed about telling the main coach at Temple that she's leaving and going back to Canada 
She gets up to use the bathroom, and when she comes back, the defendant, Cosby, is standing at the table. He had actually gone upstairs himself while she was in the bathroom, and he offered her three pills. He extends his hand. He offers her three blue pills. He says, these are your friends. They'll help you take the edge off. She asked him if she should put the pills under her tongue, and he told her, just put them down with some water, and she did. After the pills, she sits back down at the kitchen table with Cosby. They resume their conversation, and she shortly thereafter becomes... Several things start to happen. She starts to have double vision. She tells the defendant... I'm seeing two of you. Her mouth is cottony and she's slurring her words. Cosby says, you know, I think you just need to relax. She didn't know what was happening, but she felt like something was really, really wrong. They stand up from the table. Cosby takes her arm to steady her. Her legs start to feel rubbery. And he walks her through the dining room to a sofa in another room. He places her on the sofa and he says, relax there. She starts to panic and she doesn't know what's happening. She feels weak. She's not able to talk. She can't maintain consciousness. She's going in and out of consciousness. And she, her body goes into like fight or flight and she's jolted awake when Cosby forcefully penetrates her with his fingers. He puts his fingers inside of her vagina. He positioned himself behind the, on the couch and he penetrated her with his fingers and he started fondling her breasts. He takes her hand, like he grabs her hand and he puts it on his penis. And he masturbates himself with his hand. She was unable to stop or to physically stop the assault or to verbally tell him to stop. After the incident, she awakes sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. And her pants are unzipped, her bra is around her neck. She fixes her clothes and she starts to head to the front door And as she's walking there, Cosby is standing by the doorway. He's wearing a robe and slippers, and he says, hey, there's some muffin and tea on the table. She takes a few sips of tea, and then she takes the muffin with her, and she leaves. She drives herself. So this is January 2004. Between January 2004... In March 2004, they continue to have some phone contact solely regarding Temple Sports. March 2004, Cosby invites her to dinner at a restaurant in Philly. She goes to the dinner, and she's hoping to talk about the assault. He invites her to his house to talk, and once at the home, at his home, she attempts to confront him about what he gave her. And why he assaulted her. She testified in court. He was evasive. And he told her that he 
thought that she had an orgasm. Unable to get an answer, she lost all her courage and she basically just leaves the house. At the end of March 2004, she moves to Canada. She moves back home. And her mom testified in trial that when the victim returned home, she seemed really depressed and she did not seem like herself. She heard her daughter screaming in her sleep. And when she asked her about it, her daughter would say, there's nothing wrong. After returning to Canada, she had some, the victim had some contact with Cosby relating to his performance in Toronto. He was coming to Toronto. He invited her and her family to attend the show and her parents were really excited to attend the show. He had previously called her mom and they had spoken on the phone and he had, her mom had attended two of Cosby shows prior to the January 2004 incident at so her mom goes to the show in Toronto again and she brings him a gift to the Toronto show one year after the assault January 2005 the victim finally works up the courage to tell her mom what has happened she wakes up crying and she calls her mom on the phone who was on her way to work. She, after talking with her mom, telling her what happened, they decide to contact the Durham Regional Police in Ontario, Canada. When her mom finished work for the day. They also were not sure how the American criminal justice system worked because they are Canadians. They live in Canada. And they were really afraid that Cosby could retaliate against both the victim and her family. They tried to reach out to a few attorneys in the Philadelphia area that day. That evening, after her mom gets done with work, the victim and her mom contact the Durham Regional Police and they file a police report. After the report, victim's mom asks for Cosby's number to call him and Cosby call you know he sees the call and he returns the victim's mom's phone call the next day he talks to the victim and her mom and they spoke on separate phone extensions the victim confronts him about what happened with the three pills that he gave her and he apologizes on the phone. He would not tell her what he gave her and he indicated that he would have to check the prescription bottle and he would write down the name and send it to them. The victim hung up, but her mom stays on the phone and he tells her mom that he didn't penetrate her with his penis. And nobody tells him at that point that they've filed a police report. After that initial call, they, the victim's mom purchases a tape recorder. The victim and her mom then call Cosby again. Cosby, this is recorded. Cosby call, indicates on that call, 
he wants to talk a, about a mutual feeling or friendship and see if the victim is still interested in sport cast, sport casting or something in TV. Cosby also talks about paying for the victim to continue her education. He continued to refuse in that recorded conversation to give the name of the medication that he gave her that night. He also invites the victim and her mom to meet him in another city to discuss everything in person and he would have somebody call and arrange the trip. After that recorded phone call, they get a the victim gets a voice message from one of Cosby's representatives. And in the message, he says he's calling on behalf of Cosby to offer the victim a trip to see Cosby's upcoming performance in Florida. Victim records that call as well, and she returns the call. And during the conversation, he, Cosby's representative discusses the offer to attend this performance in Miami, and he tries to get her information, their information, so he can book a flight. They refuse to give him that information, and she never calls that representative back. She also gets a message from Cosby's attorney named Marty Singer. And Marty indicates that Cosby wants to set up an educational trust for her. She did not return that call. And both of those phone calls were within days of of them filing the police report and contacting Cosby and having those. On January 24th, 2005, the second piece of shit in this episode comes into the equation. The then Montgomery County District Attorney Bruce Caster Jr., He issued a signed press release indicating an investigation had commenced following the January 13th, 2005 report to the authorities in Canada. Let me tell you what law enforcement did to investigate in this, this case. He, the police, in this case, they literally took, you know, in the movies, even if you're not from America, when somebody's interrogated, even when they have a police, I mean, even when they have attorneys, the police typically will ask them questions. Well, Cosby was not asked questions in that manner. What actually happened is Sergeant Schaefer and other law enforcement officials interviewed Cosby in New York City, and they used a written question and answer format, and Cosby was accompanied by his attorneys. So are you fucking kidding me, first of all? Like, the starting point of this quote-unquote investigation is you hand somebody written 
questions and a pencil and a pen and you're like, hey, can you and attorney, you and your attorneys take some time, think this over, fill it out, get back to us. I mean, that's just disgusting and absurd to begin with. The he had two attorneys with him. He had his criminal defense attorney, Walter Phillips, and he had a longtime general counsel attorney, John Schmidt, and they were both present and taking his little question answer written statement that he gave to the police. Even with two attorneys with him and even with not having to answer questions on the fly and he's just literally writing answers most likely his attorneys are probably writing them for him this asshole gives these and this is what he says in his original statement he admits to telling to giving her benadryl that he uses to sleep when he travels he states he would take two Benadryl and would become sleepy right away. And so he gave the victim one and a half Benadryl pills. And he did not tell her what the pills were. He stated she never told him to stop and he touched her bare breast and genitalia. When asked if they had intercourse, he stated, quote, never asleep or awake. He stated there was at least three other occasions when they engaged in, quote, similar petting in his house. He stated on one occasion he initiated the petting. He stated on her second visit to his home, they were kissing in the hallway and he lifted her bra to kiss her breast and she told him to stop. He stated that just prior to the date of the statement, he spoke to the victim mom on the phone and she asked him what he had given the victim that night and he told her that he gave her some pills and he would send her the name of them but he never did he verbatim said that he never knew the victim to be untruthful following that interview unprompted the police didn't ask him to do this he shows up and gives the police three Benadryl pills, which we just need to pause and break down all of this really quickly because what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Let me also just jump for one second. February 17th, 2005, asshole Bruce Caster. I mean, can we just call him like trash bag prosecutor? I don't know what to call him, but he's a piece of shit. He issued a second signed press release saying he decided not to prosecute Cosby. But the press release cautioned the decision could be reconsidered. Let me also tell you what Caster says about why he didn't feel like they should prosecute anything. He said, quote, he says the victims delayed this delay that she had and were 
filing a complaint diminished the reliability of any recollections and undermined the investigator's efforts to collect forensic evidence. He claimed he identified inconsistencies in the victim's statement. He claimed he learned that before victim contacted the police in Canada, victim had contacted civil attorneys in Philadelphia, likely for the purpose of pursuing financial compensation in a lawsuit against Cosby. Okay, so now let's break this. Let's break this down just to this point that we're at. So many fucking issues. Number one, the Bruce fucking caster is saying the victim's delay in filing a complaint against Cosby's the issue in the investigation. Oh, really? It's not just handing somebody a piece of paper with sheet saying, hey, will you fill this out with your attorney? Like what fucking investigation? Number two. You're spending all your resources and all your time investigating the victim and the the victim's inconsistencies and the victim having a civil attorney. Um, let's see. Maybe if you spent just any of that effort, you would have uncovered how many is it, folks? 60 fucking people that have come forward saying Bill Cosby has sexually assaulted them. I mean, dear God, if this man did anything, if he lifted one finger, he could have investigated Bill Cosby and, you know, found anything. Instead, his his course of action was to investigate the victim herself and have Bill Cosby fill out some written questions didn't even bother why would we do a verbal interview quote he said having determined that a criminal trial likely could not be won he contemplated an alternative course of action that could place the victim on a path to some form of justice he decided a civil lawsuit for money damages was her best option to aid the victim in that pursuit the district attorney decided his office wouldn't prosecute Cosby, believing his decision would ultimately set off the chain of events. He thought this could give some justice to the victim. Quote, by removing the threat of criminal prosecution, Castor reasoned Cosby would no longer be able to, in a civil lawsuit to invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. Well, this is really funny and interesting because, spoiler alert, D.A. Castor did not communicate to the victim or her attorney the decision to forego prosecuting Cosby. In fact, the victim did not learn of that decision at all until a reporter appeared at her attorney's office. He... Also, interestingly, this whole decision that this whole case boils down to, I want to take a moment and let you know, it was never in writing. Never. And nobody's ever signed it. I mean, for all we know, this piece of shit made it up, honestly. So, several issues that I just want to, I hope Bruce Caster listens to this podcast, honestly. I really do. Because here's my questions for you, 
you piece of shit. Number one, you are not the trier of fact. You're not the jury. You're not the judge. You're a prosecutor. You're actually, at the time, you were an elected official of the county that you were working in. You were elected by the people to represent that county and represent victims of crimes. So why do you care? Even if in your mind you're like, oh, I could never win this. Is it your job to win? If you lost a trial, if this went to trial and you would have lost, why the fuck would that matter? If the victim wants the case prosecuted, why are you unilaterally deciding not to because, quote, a criminal trial couldn't be won? Who gives a shit? It's not about if you win or lose as a prosecutor and what your conviction rate is, you're supposed to be fighting for the victims. Did you try anything? Did you try even putting on a probable cause hearing? Your investigation literally lasted three weeks. You didn't even bring charges against him. It also seems like you were acting a as a bonus defense attorney for Cosby. Why did you spend time investigating the victim? And why didn't you investigate Cosby? If this was all about how much you care about the victim, why didn't you call her yourself? Why did she find out about this little backroom boys club deal that you had going on with Cosby from a reporter? Did you ever stop and think money means nothing to Bill Cosby? Since you didn't consult the victim in your decision, how do you even know that civil litigation is justice in her mind? Why did you decide to take away an avenue of justice for her without ever having a discussion with her? Why does the fact that she had a civil attorney make her not credible? At the time of this investigation, she had never filed a civil suit. She was the victim of a... A sexual assault. I mean, you're a fucking licensed attorney, right? Is, is that not... I'm sorry, is that not a tort? Is that not something that she's entitled to compensation for? So even if she had at the time filed a lawsuit, how would that make her not credible? How does it make her not credible to p- pursue lawful justice against somebody who sexually assaulted her? Also, her civil case was not filed until after you issued this public release and unilaterally decided you're not going to prosecute. So, hey, Bill, buddy, it appears that's the very reason she had civil attorneys ready to go. Thank God. Thank fucking God that she had somebody in her corner because she likely saw what was happening and was like, oh, I need somebody. I need an actual attorney that's going to represent my interest here when this piece of shit Bruce Castor decides not to do anything because I'm just getting that feeling. Quick question. So prosecutors, let me tell you what, and I'm only looking at what evidence Bruce Castor had at this stage. What exactly do prosecutors do? Like what do they need in terms of bringing a case forward. In terms of bringing a case forward, it all comes to probable cause. The Fourth Amendment of the Constitution says, upon showing of probable cause by oath or affirmation, that's when this can happen. That's when somebody can be arrested. That's all you need. 
probable cause is quite literally the lowest burden of proof possible. The Supreme Court of the United States has said it is the quantum of likelihood that an offense has been committed or is being committed by the person to be arrested. In Maryland versus Pringle, the Supreme Court of the United States says probable cause probably doesn't even need to exceed 50%. One third is okay, as in one third likelihood. It is a totality of the circumstance situation. I have done personally close to 200 probable cause preliminary hearings for all kinds of felony, including sexual cases, even cases involving minors. And I can tell you that it is the lowest burden of proof. It is so easy to meet probable cause. It's, I mean, almost impossible. I'm literally scrolling through my list right now of that I keep of all the litigation that I've done and the outcomes of the hearings. And I mean, I honestly, I can't find one that I, I didn't have probable cause found. And it's not because the cases were all rock solid. Like, no, that that's not it at all. It's that easy. You don't need, it's literally just like, okay, this probably happened. That's what probable cause is. And so for Bruce Castor to so quickly make this decision without even like just moving forward and not talking to the victim, that's so shady and disgusting and gross. And it's just, it's not right. It's not right at all. Here, even the fact that he tries to say that the victim was inconsistent. I mean, look at Cosby's own words. He, even when they give him a softball and they let him answer questions with his attorneys in written format, he admits he gave her drugs and he didn't tell her what they were. He admits that he takes those drugs. Well, okay. First of all, he admits that let's just assume everything Cosby's saying is actually true he gave her benadryl which i don't i i personally think it was probably something stronger than benadryl but whatever let's assume he gave her benadryl he admits he gave her benadryl he admits that he himself takes benadryl and it makes him sleepy he admits he has knowledge that it makes people sleepy he admits quote when he travels he takes benadryl which immediately makes him drowsy he admits to touching her breast, touching her vagina after giving her the medicine. He admits that the last time that she had come over, he had tried to like touch her boobs in the hallway and she had told him to stop. She admits, or Cosby admits that the victim and her mom called him, asked him for the name of the pills, and he couldn't give them the name of it. And all of this and the victim has recorded statements from Cosby and you're telling me you can't meet probable cause. Do you guys want to know what would this probable cause hearing would take? (laughs) 
Okay, I'm, I'm having too much fun, but honestly, this is, I'm just going to do a quick example of what it would take to meet probable cause with the information that Bruce Castor had at this time. He would call the victim to the stand. Hello, victim. What's your name? Thank you. Can you talk to me about the incident in January 2004? Where First, where was that located? Was that in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, basically? Were you given drugs? Did you know what they were? Did you lose consciousness? And what happened? What do you remember? Did you consent to any of it? Okay, judge, that's it. That is literally all. He doesn't even have, it's not reasonable doubt. So he doesn't need multiple witnesses. He doesn't even need to introduce the statement, although that he could if he wanted to. He could put on Cosby's statement that he gave to the police, but he, he wouldn't have to do that. It's a probable cause. He literally had to ask like five fucking questions to this victim. And instead he's like, oh, sorry, can't do it. I mean, that's just shady. That's so shady and it's not right. He said that she, he wouldn't prosecute. And at that point, you know, her only, her only option is a civil suit. And so March 8th, 2015, Less than a month after the press release comes out, they file a suit in the United States District Court, which was in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. I honestly, I just have so much anger and so much just, it's appalling, honestly, what went on here. Because I don't know how you can say that the victim was inconsistent at the at this stage either. Because her and Cosby's statements actually line up. Like, he's admitting to giving her pills. He's admitting to giving her pills that would cause her to lose consciousness. <laughs> he is admitting to prior occasions where he kissed her in the hallway and lift up her bra. And she told him to stop. He's admitting that they've been calling him and asking him to tell him what pills did you give the victim? And he hasn't been telling the victim or her mom. He admits in his own words, he tells the police in his little written statement that he never knew the victim to be untruthful. And then unprompted, like, are you fucking kidding me? How weird is that? Like, the police don't tell him to bring anything, and he just shows up, and he's like, hello, here's some Benadryl. Uh, I mean, that's so suspicious. Like, that's so weird. And are really, like, anybody can go buy Benadryl and bring it in. Like, it, it's just absurd. And then that press release comes out, and... You know, 11 years later is when Castor, like, starts talking about this stuff. And in February 2016, 11 years after that press release, at a pretrial hearing, Castor testified it was his intention to strip the defendant of his Fifth Amendment rights to force him to sit for a deposition in a yet-to-be-filed civil suit. And... 
Cosby's criminal attorney agreed with his legal assessment. He testified that he relayed his intention to the then first assistant district attorney, Risa Furman. So in the civil suit that comes about in March 2005, she files a suit and the parties are deposed. In the civil suit, he never once invokes the Fifth Amendment. He doesn't even invoke the Fifth Amendment when he's asked about other alleged victims. And there's no attempt by the defense attorneys in his civil suit to confirm any promises allegedly made by Mr. Castor prior to these depositions. And it's never referenced in any stipulation. In his own testimony, Cosby's own testimony at the depositions, he testified that he developed a romantic interest in the victim right away, but he didn't tell her. He didn't want his wife to know about his relationship with the victim, any relationship, in fact. When asked on direct examination what he meant by romantic interest, he testified romance in terms of steps that will lead to some kind of permission or no permission or how you go about getting to wherever you're going to wind up. After they first met, he, again, corroborates her statement. He admits that they talked on the phone. He admits that every time that she came to his home, it was by his invitation. She never in initiated any kind of meetups with him, ever. His own words. He testified there were three instances of consensual sexual contact with her, including the night he gave her pills. Well, Jesus Christ, thank God we're letting Cosby define consent. On one of the encounters, he testified he tried to suck her breast and she told him, no, stop. This is one of the things, literally, I'm not making this up. This is one of the incidents that he is describing as a consensual encounter. Next, he testified that the pills he gave He testified that he had knowledge of the types of Benadryl and their effects, and he indicated he would take two pills himself to help him go to sleep. He said that night in the January uh, 2004, they sat at a table in the kitchen and talked about her position at Temple, which again is exactly what the victim said from the beginning. By his own admission, he testified he gave her one and a half Benadryl and told her to take it, indicating, I have three friends to make you relax. He did not tell her the pills were Benadryl. And he said he gave her the three half pills because she take, he takes two himself and she's about his height. He testified that she looked at the pills but didn't ask what they were. I'm going to read you a direct quote of what he said he did to this poor woman. Quote, I lifted her bra up and our skin so our skin could touch. We rubbed, we kissed, we stopped. I've moved back to the sofa, coming back in a position. She's on top of me. I place my knee between her legs. She's up. We kiss. I hold her. She hugs. I move her to the position of down. She goes with me down. I'm behind her. I have my left arm 
arm behind her neck. Her neck is there and her head. There's a pillow, which is a pillow that goes on with the decoration of the sofa, not a bedroom pillow. I'm behind her. We are in what would be called a uh, spooning position. My face is right on the back of her head around her ear. I go inside her pants. She touches me. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable for her. She pulls her hand. I don't know if she got tired or what. She then took her hand and put it on top of my hand to push it in further. I move my fingers. I don't talk. She does not talk, but she makes a sound, which I feel was an orgasm. And she was wet. She was wet when I went in. All these fucking Cosby apologists and people defending him. If you just read his own fucking words... Like, the man doesn't know how to describe a consensual experience. And so, he's probably never, like, it's appalling to me that he has attorneys. And this is the narrative that he comes up with. Because even what he has described is not a consensual experience. Keep in mind, he's corroborating everything that she's said. He says, in his own words, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable for her. She pulls her hand. I don't know if she got tired or what. He is saying he thinks she was consenting because she was wet. Bodily discharge is not consent, first of all. And making a sound... He construed that to be an orgasm. Nothing about what this man has said is a consensual experience. So all these people blaming the victim, like, shut the fuck up and look at what he is saying. Look at what this man is saying. Because what Cosby says himself is not consent. Period. Again, corroborates her. He says that after the encounter, he tells her to go to sleep. And then he goes upstairs. He set an alarm. He comes downstairs two hours later when it was still dark out. The victim, they meet in the kitchen where he gives her some tea and a blueberry muffin. She took a bite and wrapped it up before she left. Huh. It's almost like the victim isn't lying at all because everything that she said happened has happened. According to Cosby himself. He admits to the phone calls in his deposition. He admits to the victim and her mom calling him. He admits to not telling them it was Benadryl. He said, quote, I'm on the phone. I'm listening to two people. And at first I'm thinking the mother's coming at me for being a dirty old man, which is also bad, which is bad also. But then what did you give my daughter? And if I put these things in the mail and these people in Canada what are they going to do if they receive it what are they going to say and I'm to be perfectly frank I'm thinking and I'm praying nobody is recording me (laughs) are you fucking kidding me listen to him he's telling you exactly who he is he's telling you exactly what he did he also testified that the victim's mom he's thinking Oh, I'm thinking this is a dirty old man with a young girl. I apologize. I said to the mom, it was digital penetration. He admits to offering to pay the victim to attend graduate school. 
He admits to having his attorney contact her regarding an educational trust. He admits and he testifies he does not believe himself. He doesn't believe the victims after money. When asked if it was his belief, it was in his best interest that the public believed the victim consented, he said yes. He believed there would be financial consequences if the public believed he had drugged the victim and gave her something other than Benadryl. In his deposition, he admits and testified about using quaaludes with women whom he wanted to have sex with. He ultimately paid $3.38 million dollars in the settlement. Keep in mind, attorneys typically take 33 and a third percent of that. Listen to what this man is saying because he is so disgusting. He does not even know how to come up with a lie that sounds consensual. So let me tell you a few things here to anyone who's blaming victims. You know, I've gotten a lot of comments this week on my Instagram with people blaming victims. Somebody saying, well, she shouldn't have taken the pill. She shouldn't have gone over there. Drug use is not equal to consent. It doesn't matter if I take heroin, meth, crack, if I drink myself so that I'm not conscious. If I go up to Bill Cosby myself and I'm like, hey, Bill, give me some pills. Give me something to knock me out, Bill. That has nothing to do with consenting to a sexual experience. Whether I I just like drugs, I do drugs, whether I'm naive when it comes to drugs and maybe you would have handled it differently. The drug use is not the issue just because somebody does drugs it doesn't mean that they're giving a green light to the entire world to do whatever they want with their body it does not mean that you are consenting to any kind of sexual experience with this person just because it's like saying that everybody who does drugs and likes to party is down to fuck anybody in the whole world. I mean, that's disgusting, and that narrative needs to stop. That is not the issue. It doesn't matter if I'm shooting up in my arm and I am on every drug imaginable. The issue is she never consented with Bill Cosby. And even if you are making that argument, it doesn't even make fucking sense because she'd been over to his house before she had a relationship with him. And as she said herself, I mean, she was a professional basketball player. She's 30 years old. He's 66. They have a relationship. She's been there before. He's not drugged her. When he gives her medicine, if you're saying that, you don't feel good or you're tired or you're not whatever the case if you're around somebody you trust are you I mean knowing what we know about Bill Cosby now it's easy to think oh yeah I would never take those pills but 
don't be so quick to judge and fucking blame people because it's really easy to see how that situation happened. And like I said, that's a non-issue because even if she asked him for the pills, it doesn't apply to what's going on. Asking somebody to have some drugs to get fucked up doesn't mean that you're trying to have sex with them. Period. So where, where does this all go wrong? Why does the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania come to the conclusion they did? So the piece of shit caster eventually stops being the district attorney. He becomes a county commissioner. The new district attorney is now in charge, Risa Furman. And in September of 2015, September 22nd, 2015, she has a meeting with her people and they're discussing, you know, what to do with the Cosby situation. On September 23rd, 2015, Bruce Castor, piece of shit, sends an unsolicited email to that new DA. And he attaches the press release and he says that, you know, hey, uh, you guys shouldn't prosecute because look at this attached press release. I had come to an agreement with Cosby's attorney and I said we weren't going to prosecute them. She responds with a letter that she sent via hand delivery, the, the new, actually competent district attorney. And she said, this is the first I've heard of a binding agreement. And he sends an email back. And he says that naturally, if a prosecution could be made out without using what Cosby said or anything derived from what Cosby said, I believed and then continued to believe that a prosecution is not precluded. On September 25th, 2015, at 4.19 p.m., Castor stated, I never said we would not prosecute Cosby. He testified he could not recall any other case where he made this type of binding legal analysis in Montgomery County, but he claimed the press release was the agreement. He said, but... Here's the thing. The press release specifically cautioned the parties the decision could be revisited. It said, quote, District Attorney Castor cautions all parties to this matter that he will reconsider this decision should the need arise. However, 11 years later, when Castor is being asked about it, he's saying, oh, he absolutely intended to remove the possibility of prosecution. I'm not even going to get into a side note about this. So numerous women come forward and several were allowed to testify in the trial. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania didn't even address this argument or this analysis in their finding because they said the point was moot and it was irrelevant. The issue all came down to and the whole reason that Cosby's conviction was reversed is the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania agreed with him and said prosecutors were precluded from prosecuting him based on the agreement. He did, there was never a signed agreement. There was never a signed agreement by Cosby. There was never a signed agreement by the DA. What they're considering the agreement is the press release. So this makes no sense because the press release said it remained open that 
Castor could revisit this. And it even said the Commonwealth will not bring a case against Cosby based on the upon then available evidence. He, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania said that Castor testified again like 11 years later that it was his intention to preclude prosecution of Cosby. It's so easy to say that now. Like, it, it really is, but it's complete opposite of what the press release said. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania talked about how this is really much like contract law principles. And they said, under some circumstances, assurances given by prosecutors during plea negotiations may be enforceable on equi equitable grounds. We have determined that Cosby, in fact, relied upon D.A. Castor's decision, and we now conclude his reliance was reasonable. The record establishes, contradiction, er, establishes without contradiction depriving Cosby of his Fifth Amendment right was D.A. Castor's intended result. His actions were specifically designed to that end. And by choosing not to prosecute Cosby and announcing it publicly, Castor reasonably expected Cosby to act in reliance on that decision. Again, they had argued that five additional accusers were improper, but they did not weigh in on that question because they found it, it moot. Notably, one of the Supreme Court justices made a dissent. So they did, Justice Saylor disagreed with the majority court's determination and wrote, I respectfully disagree. The press release issued by the former DA Castor contained an unconditional promise. Rather, I read the operative language. DA Castor declines to authorize the filing of criminal charges in connection with this matter as a conventional public announcement of present exercise of prosecutor prosecutorial discretion by a temporary occupant of the elected office of the DA. In no way is it binding on his future decision-making process, let alone any of his successors. Trial court's explicit finding that Castor made no promise that the Commonwealth would never prosecute. And the fact is, it's an unwritten promise, and it was rejected by the trial court on credibility grounds. Castor's account of his motivations underlying his uncredited assertion of a promise need not be separately contradiction by record evidence to also fall by the wayside. There's tons of possible explanations why he issued the press release, considering it was a high-profile matter, as well as why he subsequently claimed there was a promise to not prosecute. And from my point of view, the majority opinion of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court here is really undermining the trial court's fact finding on critical points. They're the ones who heard the testimony from him and they found him to not be credible. They found the DA to not be credible. So this is the entire reason that Bill Cosby's conviction was reversed. It's disgusting. It's sick. And it, it's false. I mean, First of all, 
what attorney and what defendant, if you weren't part of this little good old boys club, I mean, really, you're not going to even get a written agreement. You're just going to be like, no, we, we trust them enough that they're not prosecuted they can never prosecute me. His attorneys didn't even make any effort to secure any of that. Like they let their client testify. They didn't make any objections, even when it came to victims that were not his, that were not this victim. So when he was asked about victims in other cases in the deposition, I mean, he had advice of counsel at every point of his from the second this all starts, he has attorneys with him. And yet you're giving him all of this leeway and credibility. And it's just disgusting. In my opinion, there was definitely no agreement. The release even said, even if that's what we're considering as agreement, they even said that they could change their mind. So what kind of agreement is that? It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And as I went through at the beginning of the procedural history, every other court has not agreed with the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. It's significant injustice and it's just gross. Considering that we know also that the DA, Castor, made all these decisions without even consulting the victim. It would be one thing if him and the victim came up with this together and she was okay with it and she was on board because we should listen to victims we should listen to survivors and do what they want but he made all these decisions on his own probably because he's in the good old boys club and he did some backdoor deals and you know he just did that he did it and it's really gross if I had to guess I would guess that that DA caster he has done some shady shit. If I had to guess, I'm sure Cosby gave him some money. I mean, the quote-unquote investigation he did is just disgusting. It's a few weeks. He didn't even try to charge. He didn't even try to put on probable cause. He tries to act like this was all for the victim, but he didn't give a shit about the victim. And it just shows how much our American legal justice system needs reform. Because this is disgusting. This disgusting rapist is walking around on the street right now. And it's not right. And I hope that you never, ever forget what happened here. And I hope that we all push to make changes with the law. It matters who you vote into office. It matters who the DA is. It matters who you elect to be the DA. Because they are responsible when shit like this happens. It matters who becomes judge. It matters. And we need to hold people accountable. We need to hold Bill Cosby accountable. We need to hold the DA, former DA, Bruce Castor accountable because they are pieces of shit. And that's a fact. Thank you guys. That is all I have for you today. I am outraged. I will see you next week.